Amen. We are continuing. Uh, this is our second sermon in the parable series. Our passage this morning is Matthew 13. We'll look at verses 44 to 46. We, we began this series last week, and I'm not going to necessarily hone in every week on what is a parable, but we know that Jesus really loved to teach in these stories. They're fictitious. fictitious. They resonated with the original audience. Uh, they didn't simply, they illustrated his point, but they also went farther. They disrupted. They, they create, create tension for the hearer. Also, we're told last week in the, in the parable of the sower and the explanation that they're hidden from many people. And so what we found last week is those that want to move toward Jesus have access to his parables. The more we know Jesus, the more we learn about who he is, the more we can understand his parables. As I was thinking about the, de- the, the interpretation of the two we'll look at, I was thinking, you know, that the, the parables were not only preached in real time, but the writers of Matthew and Mark and Luke uh, later fully understood that Jesus had to die and he rose again and he ascended and, and his spirit has come on them and they are now writing the scriptures and they still write these parables for us even though we have all of the, of the definitions of the parables. So what we get to do as New Testament believers is look backward and go, I can understand them even better because we know Jesus. So that's our goal, to not only know what they meant in real time, but what they mean fully orbed if possible. And this morning's parables, uh, it, they're the two shortest, and it's in just back to back. Verses 44 will be one of the parables, and 45, 45 and 46 will be the other two parables. And they find themselves in a, in a setting of kingdom parables. Jesus is explaining what is the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean? And it's a mystery, and it still is. It's hard for us to fully grasp, but we have to remember that Jesus came preaching the kingdom. And in one place, he says the kingdom of God is present and, in fact, is here. He is, in essence, the king in, in, the, in the presence of the kingdom in our midst. And so we talked about last week the already and the not yet. Do you remember that? So theologians call it the already and the not yet. One day, someday, our longing is to be present in heaven with God face to face. That's the not yet. We don't have that yet. But we have an already portion that the kingdom is already present. And for Christians, we already are united to, to God in Christ. So there's this alreadiness to it. And our challenge is in the, in the meantime to figure out how to grow closer to him while still being separated. So that's, that's the goal with understanding these parables. So let's look again. Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, thank you that you've given us these parables and you've taught us what they mean. Holy Spirit, we pray as we dive into Scripture that you would illuminate it to us, that we would understand it. Help us not be the crowd that left thinking they understood it. Help us be the disciples that press in and say, Jesus, explain it to us. We want treasure. Amen. Um, I did it again. I have a, an illustration, but I don't have all the perfect details, and I'm so sorry. I just remember watching this, and this morning I thought I'm using it. 
How many of you saw the virtual video of the, of the Antiques Roadshow guy who had a Rolex? Raise your hand if you've seen that. I just want to see if anyone's seen this. Okay. Antiques Roadshow, I really love that show. Uh, it's the show on PBS where you go, you know, they come to your town, you bring things you hope are valuable, treasures, and they tell you yes or no. Often they're worthless or they're like worth a couple of dollars. Every now and then there's like, this is worth so much money. Well, there's one that went viral because... He knew it was valuable as a Rolex, so the owner knew it was valuable, but he wasn't sure how valuable. He had bought it during his time in Vietnam. I think he was in on uh, furlough in, in Hawaii, bought it, never wore it. It was a special, and he just kept it in a box. And so the Rolex, the, the Antiques Roadshow representative is like shaking with his little stick as he's like pointing out all the details. And the way the show works is they go through all the details, they ask questions, and at the very end, they tell you the value. And uh, this is the part I'm the most sad about. I don't know the value. Isn't that horrible? <laughs> I want to say like a million dollars. Okay, just bear with me on this. All I know is here's the point. When he tells the man the value of this Rolex, and the guy knew it was valuable, he faints. He literally just falls backwards and, gets, and then he gets up, and these guys kind of came to help him. He couldn't believe it. He knew it had some value. But when he heard the total value, he just collapsed. And I just, I think those stories are so exciting because we long to stumble upon treasure. We long to be the person who, what if, right? And then we come to these two parables and Jesus is saying, you have, you have the Rolex, but do you know how valuable it is? And I don't know that we're going to faint today, but it would be wonderful if we could have his response to hearing the glory and the power and the amazingness of the treasures we have in the kingdom of heaven. So the goal this morning is to understand that and maybe not faint actually, but to be just overjoyed at what we have. Three things we're going to look at then. The, the location, how, how the treasure is hidden in plain sight. That's point one. We're going to look at how costly it is once you uncover it. And then finally, it's infinite value. So let's begin with hidden in plain sight. Both of these parables give a story of, of a person or going into a situation and finding something that was in everyday places. The first person, he uh, is in a field. He found, finds a treasure. And then he does what? He covers it up. And he goes, in his joy, to buy the field. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us why he's in the field in the first place. Uh, obviously, it's not a true story. There doesn't have to be an, an answer to that question, but, but it might be that he's a worker. Uh, he's in the field doing some labor. We don't know. But what we do know is that when he goes to buy the field, the owner has no idea there's treasure there. So uh, this is interesting. Um, in our modern era, it seems interesting. Like, it's almost like theft, doesn't it? Well, what happened, here's the story. In that day, uh, these fields, uh, when you had wealth, you didn't just put them in a bank. Now, when I say that day, I don't necessarily mean when Jesus is in, in the time of Jesus, because I think by that point you did have banks. But these fields go back many, many centuries and what would happen is you would think, if I leave all my treasure in my house and we would go to war, someone comes in and th steals it, any kind, of, any kind of upheaval, it's gone, so they hid their treasure. So it's very common, not very common, it was common to hear stories of people uncovering treasure. Uh, I did come, I was in the com one of the commentaries says, even not long ago, a jar was found um, with 20 pounds of silver, but it dates back to the 11th century B.C., so even in the you know, 21st century, 
some of these fields have treasures that are still buried from ancient times. And it was somewhat common enough to where rabbis had to have law, like Jewish laws on what to do. Is it yours? Is it the landowners who owns it? And they never really settled on it. But, but the general idea is if you own the field, it was yours. So Jesus tells a parable about finding treasure, and he includes a loophole. This rabbinic law loophole, he's saying it's so valuable, and this person is so ready to receive treasure, he would actually go away and sell everything to buy it. So it's, it's there. And, and you can imagine later, if you're the landowner, going, I walked by it every day. It was just like right there underneath that tree. I had no idea. And so there's this sense in which it's hidden in plain sight. The, the pearl is similar in that, or actually it's different, in that the, the, the merchant of pearls is actually looking for pearls. And the seller of the pearl of great price knows he has a really great pearl, and he still sells the pearl. So it's a very interesting parable, but again, it shows that this person who sells the pearl is aware of its value, but obviously not aware of its infinite value. So you have these two parables that show that there is this, this sort of ordinariness to the kingdom. That these, the, yes, it's treasure, and yes, it's valuable, but other people miss it. And that kind of goes along with our theme of missing things that are right before you. By the way, you can Google stories all day long of like people finding treasure. It's kind of fun. But here's another one I had found in the past. A man goes to a garage sale, and he sees a Declaration of Independence copy, buys it, buys a couple of other things, goes home. Um, upon research, it was a copy of the Declaration. It wasn't the original, obviously. But it was a copy from John Quincy Adams, the fifth president of the United States. He had made 200. He had 200 printed. Only 35 are still in existence. This is the 36th. So the man quickly finds out, and I do know that value, $500,000. So think about that. The person selling it goes, yeah, I've got a copy of the Declaration of Independence. It's framed. You can have it for $10. They knew it was worth something, but they had ignored the full value of it that someone else found. And so the question is, what are the ordinary things we're walking right past, right over? Uh, These parables seem to indicate there is treasure in our midst. And I think the gospel is a picture of that. In 1 Peter, Peter tells us the angels longed to see the gospel, to understand what you and I understand in Christ Jesus. And so often I think it's tempting to say, that's just the gospel. I remember being in Japan and we were introducing uh, the Sonship program to some of the workers there and and one of the guys who was a short-term missionary like us looked at the material and said, it's just the gospel. A, A verbatim quote, it's just the gospel. Wow, yes, it's just the ordinary gospel that transforms everything. C.S. Lewis talks about how um, the, the, some of the problem with our modern era, this is back when he was writing in the, in the 40s and 50s, we, we, we look for the extraordinary, the gospel, in extraordinary ways. We want experiences. We want, we want concerts. We want, we want trips and, and things. We want to mark things off and how God uses ordinary things to deliver his gospel. Even in Isaiah, Jesus is described as nothing which would attract your attention. His visible presence would not be handsome and tall and, you know, um, something that would draw your attention. 
Are you looking for the ordinary? Lewis goes on to write how if you go to just normal church, you'll walk in saying, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for the gospel. But what we're really all looking for is, is this a group I can worship with? Do I want to be seen with these people? And then if you notice double chins and bad, this is Lewis's quotes, double chins and bad breath and poor singing voices, we kind of want to distance ourselves from those people. And yet that's the ordinary place where the gospel lives. In ordinary places, are we missing the treasure? And then in another area, Lewis talks about, um, this is in his fantasy uh, trilogy where he, there's a guide taking this man into heaven and he sees a woman who's seemingly being worshipped. She's not actually being worshipped. But the way she appears, the, the visitor to heaven wanted to worship. And there's this trail of just people, as far as I could see, following her. And he asked the guide, is, is that meaning like Mary? And the guide's like, the guide says, not at all. You wouldn't know this person. Her name is Sarah Smith from Golders Green, a little, town, a little suburb in London. And she had no children. But these are her children. And he goes on to explain that in her ordinary life, she treated people so gloriously, so well, that even the, the male delivery person felt like she, he, she was his mother. You see, children felt like she was their mother and grandmother that she loved so well. Ordinariness in heaven, if we could see saints in heaven, we'd be tempted to worship. The gospel is extraordinary, but it's found in these hidden places, these everyday places. I would love to spend more time there. I will just throw out quickly, just think of poetry. When you read an amazing poem, what's the poet doing? He's taking a very, or she, or he is taking a very ordinary subject matter and trying to draw you in. The same is true with visual artists. They're trying to say, yeah, what you thought was a haystack, let me paint a hundred times from different lighting and different angles. And, and you look at it now and you go, that's glorious. So let us just be aware of that as we move into our second thought of where this treasure is found. It's not only ordinary in, in kind of ordinary places, but it's also very costly. That's the second principle we find in our passage. Not a, they find, you know, that going back to the very first parable, verse 44, this man finds it in the field. He's uncovered it. He covers it up. And then what does he do? He goes and sells everything, everything to buy the field. He doesn't go and sell just enough. He doesn't haggle on a price. He doesn't say, okay, if I just sell that part of my possessions, I have it. He sells everything. The same thing is true, and it's even more stark with this pearl merchant. I mean, if you're a pearl merchant, you would hope, okay, over time, I've amassed a fortune. I find this pearl. You clearly don't know the value. Let me kind of, uh, let me kind of talk you down, and I'll sell just a portion of my other pearls. But he doesn't. What does it say in verse 46? He sold all that he had to buy the pearl. This costliness of the kingdom is very important. In Isaiah 55, we actually sing this here as well, but this idea that without money, Isaiah says, without money, come and buy. It's an interesting turn of phrase. It's costly and it's free. How is that possible? There's this amazing exchange that happens where when you come to the kingdom of heaven and you see it, your view of economics changes. We've all heard of the proverbial uh, buggy whip. There was like some guy somewhere who made buggy whips, and one day he made that last buggy whip. Right, what happened? Cars. Right, economics changed for him. Now, what if he could sell that buggy whip to another country who still used horse and carriage? He would be fine. But what he now knows is cars is where it's at. The gospel comes, and your economics change. And all of a sudden, 
all the stuff you thought was so valuable may be valuable to other people, and you may be useful to you in your life, but it's the economics have shifted because the kingdom has come, and your eyes have been opened to this infinite value. So it's costly because of its value, and we'll talk more about the value in our last point. But I think a lot of Christians, a lot of us struggle because we think we come to the gospel by degrees. Like, you know, 10% this year, maybe when I'm 30, I'll be at 30%. Like, I'll, I'll get more serious as I go. I'm going to sow some wild oats, but I'll go, to, I'll go to church. Someday I'll be a small group type person. You know, we go into it, we limp into it by degrees. And that's not how the Bible presents it at all. You know, the story of the rich ruler, it's almost like the anti of these parables, right? The rich ruler has it all. He shows up to Jesus. He says, good teacher. Error number one. Jesus is like, why do you call me good? And it's a trick. He doesn't wait for the answer. No one is good but God. Rich ruler blows right by that. And then Jesus says, have you, the man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I.e., I have everything I need. There's this one tick, one missing trophy, that one last bit I need to add to all that I have. Eternal life. And Jesus says, great, have you followed all the laws? What, what commandments have you kept? And the guy tells Jesus basically all of them. It's foolishness. Of course he hasn't. Jesus says, perfect. He followed the law. This will be very easy. Simply go and sell everything. Take that money, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the man goes away sad. So it's an anti-story to these two parables. In front of that man is the kingdom. But it was hidden in plain sight. And the cost was to sell everything, right? Now, let me be clear. I'm not suggesting you have to literally go and sell all you have, although it wouldn't hurt you. Try it out and just give it to the church and Meadows of Hope. Just kidding. The question is, what are you placing your value in? Like, what are you clinging to? Right, Paul in Philippians, when he gives his list, he says, I, I used to consider these things as everything. You know, when I was born, the tribe I was born to, the day my, my, my circumcision happened and, and, and the group I belonged to, all these things used to matter. But now I only boast in Christ. He doesn't say I quit thinking about those things or those things are no longer true of me. He's just simply saying that's not my identity. The kingdom comes, you find it, and you want it more than anything. But it's very costly because it costs you everything. So I guess my, my question to you as we move into our, in a moment in our last point, what are you not willing to give up? And maybe said another way, in even a harsher way, what are you using Jesus to get? Are you trying to, you know, pass an exam, get married? If I just follow Jesus until I'm married, then I can quit acting like I'm Christian. You know, is it trying to get to some kind of a promotion? Oftentimes, we'll sort of pick up our religious life for a season. And Jesus will have none of that. It's 100%. Okay? That's it. That's good. So, I love turning up the heat. I see it in the front row. Okay, but why would we do that? Why would we sell everything? Why do these two merchants, well, one merchant, one person who stumbles upon this value. Why would they sell everything? And the answer is, and this is good news, because in their understanding, rightly, what they found was infinitely more valuable. It wasn't in, in any way comparable. They had no qualms. They didn't, they didn't say, I'm going to sell everything, and then they went back and thought, 
I mean, do I have to get rid of my baseball cards? I mean, they went and gladly sold it for sale, for sale. They were so excited to get the kingdom. In fact, in verse 44, I love the order. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that. It doesn't say then he sells it anxiously, hoping that once he sells everything, the seller of the field will still agree and haven't stumbled upon the, you know. And eventually, once he gets it, he goes, ah, ha, ha, it's mine. He has joy immediately, even in the selling of his possessions. Joy. Where does it come from? What is the value of the kingdom? Now, in the Old Testament, we hear of it in different ways. In Psalm 19, uh, you hear that the psalmist is saying, you know, God's precepts, his very character, his way is precious. And at one point he says it's to be desired more than gold, more than refined gold. In Proverbs 16, 16, and several other places, how much better is it to get wisdom? So in Psalms, it was his character. In Proverbs, it's wisdom. Whatever the proverb writer means by wisdom, he's saying it's better to have wisdom than gold and to get understanding than silver. So even in the Old Testament, as they long for Jesus, there is this clear awareness that when the kingdom comes, when Jesus comes, the value to you will be much more than these material things. It's infinitely valuable. So I was meditating on Colossians this week, and it really, in a way, had nothing to do with this sermon prep, but I couldn't get past the overlap, and I love how the Lord does that. So bear with me as I tell you about the value of Jesus. What we have in these parables is Jesus explaining to his early disciples the value of the kingdom, but you know that throughout their discipleship, as I mentioned in the opening, they grew more and more aware. They were constantly mystified. He has to die? It was this constant needing to learn and tweak until finally, even in Acts, the Holy Spirit comes on them, the apostles and the disciples, and they begin to understand the nature and the value of the kingdom. And then Paul, much later, uh, or somewhat later, also has his conversion where everything turns upside down. And in very clear language, Paul in Colossians explains to the church at Colossae the value of Jesus. But listen to some of the language. In verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, he's making the word fully known, the mystery hidden for ages, but now revealed to his saints. And he's talking about Christ. And in chapter 2, he says, He's talking about the hearts of the church, that they would be encouraged and knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul is giving us the answer to the parable. What is the pearl? What is the treasure? It's Jesus. And it's your connection to Jesus, that, that you, church, are in Christ. This is our forebearer, this church at Colossae. It's not by accident we're sitting here. It's not by accident you're turning, tuning in at home if you're still on. We've beaten the national average if you're still with us. Jesus is the treasure. But he explains it further in, chapter, in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ, walk in him. So many people receive Jesus, hopefully, by saying, ah, oh, I've been redeemed, and, I, and he's purchased me, and he loves me. But later in our walk in Christ, what happens is we start to do 
duty and effort, and, and it gets dry and old and dull. And that was happening. In fact, in verse 8, Paul's like, do not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit and human tradition. Stop that. And he repeats the gospel. Here's what he says. Just bear with me. I know it's a completely different passage, but the treasures of Jesus are these. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's verse 13 of Colossians 2. God made alive you and him together, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then listen to verse 14. By canceling the record of debt. By canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. I'm going to illustrate that with dodgeball. I love dodgeball. As a kid, PE class, dodgeball, I couldn't wait. Right? Anyone else? I know they make adult leagues. I should join it. But here is the worst thing about dodgeball. First of all, you spent three class periods on different days hearing about the rules. I hated that about PE. But the day came where we get to actually play dodgeball. And you get out there, and the whistle blows, and a ball nicks you. Have you ever had that experience? Anybody? Like, I'm out. So you go to the sideline, you wait around for the game to end, and you know that when the game ends, there might be another game, and then the bell rings. You're like, no. Okay, you all know the feeling. I just need to know you're with me a little bit. I mean, I'm talking about dodgeball. What if you had a jersey, like a special jersey? You get to play dodgeball, but when the ball hits you, it doesn't matter. It may sting a little. I don't think it ever hurts that bad. But you get to stay in. How awesome would you be at dodgeball? Like you would be the guy or the girl on the court. The gospel is that jersey. Okay, it's not a perfect illustration. But the point is this. The record of debt has been nailed to the cross. And you think, well, that just means the forgiveness of my sins, right? Of course. But not just your sins. The record of, that the world tries to hold you to. Because look at verse 15. If you re- or just listen to verse 15, Colossians. He, Jesus by nailing your record to the cross, disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He disarmed all of the minions, both satanic minions and the people who express those opinions about you, who come at you with shame and guilt and methods of measuring you and saying, maybe you could change a little bit, you could tweak a little bit, you're a little bit less than, and we just get crushed. And Jesus has said, no, that record is done. You have a jersey the balls are hitting you, but they don't hurt. It's dodgeball. And there's no power in it. That's the gospel message. And so what Jesus is saying is you have this treasure you have found, and the, the entire economic system has changed, and I can now sell off all the stuff that gives me my identity. I can get rid of it because I have my identity in Christ. What's fascinating about these two parables as the, as this, is that the person who finds the treasure and covers it and buys the field has this treasure. The person who finds the pearl sells everything and buys the pearl. Now, I don't know what the guy with the treasure does, but the guy with the pearl just has a pearl. It has value, but he's not yet, or she, I mean, it's a, it's a guy, not yet realizing the benefits of it. There's sort of a future orientation to it. Does that make sense? That's the strangest thing about value. When you have something of value, it's currently valuable, but... It's realized later, continuing in Colossians. Paul's whole point is, is, that, is that with Christ, your record's been nailed to the cross, and when he rose again, you were given a new record. 
And in chapter 3, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, really it's since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Why? You have died. You have died. You've sold it all. Your life is present tense, hidden with Christ and God. Present tense. In verse 4, chapter 3, and when Christ, who is currently your life, appears, then you will also appear with him glorified. That's your treasure, the glory. It's already yours. When you struggle, go back into that room where you saved that pearl and open the box. Jesus is there. Not in a box, but the point is we go back to the ordinary means of grace. We go back to the scriptures. We go back to church. We go back to prayer. We go back to meditation. Remind me over and over, Lord, of what this glory is. And he comes to you. And Paul is saying, seek those things. Seek that Jesus. Seek that truth. Remember that reality, that gospel. It disarms the rulers and the authorities. That's the gospel message. That's what these parables are about. Now, there is an alternative potential, and I've wrestled with how to understand Matthew 13, 45, and 6 for a long time. Because when you read those parables of the kingdom, and almost every, there's several. There's the sower, there's the weeds, the two we're looking at. There's also a parable of the net. And in almost every one of those parables, the object are people. And, this, and the subject, the one operating, is usually God or, or Jesus, right? And so you kind of wrestle with, well, why, why do when we come to these two, all of a sudden, am I the one finding the treasure? Am I the one finding the pearl? And you notice there is a bit of a difference in the first parable, a person's in a field and just stumbles upon, the, upon treasure. But in the second one, it's a pearl merchant, an expert. And he goes looking for particular pearls. And he finds one of great price. And in this joy, because I think that's fair, even though it's not in the second parable, it's similar. In this joy, sells everything that he has to get the pearl. Right? I think you're the pearl. I think Jesus has pursued you. I think Jesus has found you. And for his joy, as Hebrews 12 tells us, has gone to the cross scorning its shame to purchase you. Not because of who you are, like your record of, of, of actions, not because of something special you've done, not because of the family you came out of or the denomination you think you belong. Because he loves you from all of time, he's pursued you. It's true. That's the gospel message. And when we are pursued by Jesus and our eyes are opened and he values us, we slowly through our discipleship begin to see his value and treasure him more and more and more by degrees. We don't come to the kingdom by degrees. We come at great cost, but we grow slowly. Do you hear the difference? The gospel requires a 100% salvation, born again, Jesus' spirit comes on you. But in our flesh, this side of heaven, we have to come back and be reminded over and over again. I like what Shane said about the Lord's Prayer. Even the disciples said, teach us to pray. Teach us. And even the disciples here are like, what do you mean by these parables? And even the church at Colossae is saying, Paul, we don't get it. Please tell us again. Tell us again about Jesus and what he's done. And so that's what you and I are doing when we come into worship. 
we're coming in to be reminded of the fact that the kingdom of God is infinitely valuable, and he includes you in his kingdom. Does that make sense? So here's my question. As you leave here today, pay attention to what you're looking to for completion, what you're looking to for identity. Is it OSU football? It's a really bad choice. Let me also say OU football is a bad choice. <laughs> but to be fair, we do. We look at, that's what makes it insidious. We, we look at things that we sort of know the second we hold them, they're going to crumble, but we still sort of love that three-minute moment, that one-hour moment, that one-week moment. What are those things? Jesus is saying, how about in eternity? Seek him above all else. Let's pray.